Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and this morning I am at the Australian National University and I'm really thrilled to be interviewing um, Professor Emily Banks. Um, she's a public health physician and epidemiologist, and she currently leads the Epidemiology for Policy and Practice Group at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at ANU, um, otherwise known as NCEF. Um, I first came across Emily as the scientific director of the 45 and Up study. I used some of that data for my PhD, and she's previously been based in the UK, where she was the deputy director of the Cancer Research UK Epidemiology Unit at the University of Oxford, and she was also the joint principal investigator of the Million Women's Study. Um, and she also has a long line of awards and other numerous things that I'm not going to have time to cover um, but it's a very impressive resume and I'm really excited to be interviewing her today. Welcome Emily. Hi Emily. Hi welcome. Um, so maybe could you start by describing what your current role entails? So I have a pretty broad role and, and in a way often in public health what you do is you sort of accumulate projects and you accumulate more and more things and you don't t- and, and because projects are quite long term often things don't sort of fall off. So I would say if I was looking at my, at my role generally, I'm still conducting primary research and I'm still uh, supervising analyses and I'm still writing papers, but more and more I'm leading a team of people. So in 2010 I was, I was sort of given permission to set up my own research group, so back then it was me, just one person. It's now grown to be over 20 people wow. and we supervised over 50 students as a team last year. And that's in addition to my work where I'm still the scientific director of the 45 and Up study, which has grown to include 650 collaborating researchers and over 200 publications. So it's a pretty broad thing. I would say that a lot of my work now is about really supporting and building my team. So within the Epidemiology for Policy and Practice group, we have the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research Group, which is led by Ray Lovett. We have the Variation in Health and Healthcare Group, led by Rosemary Corder. We have the Humanitarian Health Program, which is led by Camelini Lokuge. And we have a Chronic Disease Epidemiology Program, which I lead. And we have a Cross-Cutting Biostatistics Program, which is led by Dr Grace Joshi. So it's, it's a pretty interesting range of things that I end up doing. That's great. And how, when you were given um, your own sort of research team or that was leading in that direction, how did you decide what your particular area or focus was going to be? Well, at the time, I mean, I wasn't given any money specifically. I was just allowed to uh, you know, start a group. And so I was really, it was really determined by what I thought was of greatest importance and also where my skills lay. So I, I really considering those things together, I'd been working a lot in cancer epidemiology, but I'd also been working in chronic disease more generally or non-communicable disease. So I'd been working on the Men and Women's Study in the UK and also um, the early stages of the UK Biobank. So I came over here um, to Australia to set up the 45 and Up study in collaboration with Sally Redman and many other fantastic people. So. I was really used to using large-scale quantitative, particularly observational data, to look at really common and potentially modifiable causes of disease. Increasingly, my work has been spanning research and policy and working much more closely and intimately with the end users of research, and that includes policymakers, but also people from NGOs like the Heart Foundation and the Cancer Council, and also working out much better ways of getting that research to be actually of use to policymakers and also to be used in policy. And what are some of the ways, because I think that's something we really struggle with in academia, about translating our research into policy. Do you have any tips about what we should be doing differently? Well, we've been working here on what we would call the output-oriented model of policy engagement, because I think what a lot of researchers have problems with is, first, it's not clear where to start. 
uh, the, the health department looks quite can look quite monolithic from yeah. the outside and you think well where do I start the other thing is it's very possible to have multiple meetings and I certainly had this of of like-minded people within policy agencies where you say well we've got these good things going on and they say that's fantastic and nothing happens you sort of meet and, and, and nothing happens and they're also known to be these quite serious mismatches between what a policy expectation is and say for example the time frames in research so we often have really long programs of work whereas the policymakers have a kind of window of opportunity that op- opens up and they've only got Sometimes it's even as short as an hour. Sometimes it's as long as two weeks. Sometimes it's months. So we need to have an approach that builds on our strengths and and what we do at the same time as bridging that gap. So the output-oriented model is where you choose an output, like a research paper, something that you've got carriage of that's your work, and, and you think in advance about this particular one as having something which is likely to be of interest to policymakers. So an example I would use is we were doing work on smoking and mortality. Now one of the problems with that is researchers will go, well, why are you looking at that? It says it on the packet. That's yeah. quite a common reaction. But we knew that Australia didn't have specific estimates from the Australian epidemic of smoking about its impact. And we also know that the impact of smoking varies from country to country and over time. So it was a big deal that we were using a kind of average of the worldwide estimates here, which said that around 50% of smokers would die from their habit if they didn't quit. That's current smokers. But we knew that we were missing the estimates for Australia. So we took that, that output and we used that as the main focus of engagement. So we went into policy agencies and when we had the very first results, we um, actually talked about them and we said, oh, and here are some other things we're planning on tobacco control and what do you think about those? So the output-oriented model is to, is to focus on the output but also to have the program of work available so that your, your end users can comment on it. And they, would, and they said, well, these are all great but can you bring the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander focus work forward because we've got some really important areas that we work on at the moment there. The other thing we did was to engage the end users like the Cancer Council and the Heart Foundation as investigators on the project mm. and the, with the aim to co-produce that output. So we, we had the co-production and we also had this increasing awareness and then we were giving the health um, department and other people a kind of sneak preview or an early warning of what was coming up uh, so that we can they could fit it in with their timeframes. And then prior to the release of the specific output, you make sure that everyone who's a stakeholder really uh, has an awareness of it. You actually have a, we do a written engagement plan around each of our really important papers. So we list all of the potential people we would, we would see as stakeholders who should know about it in advance. We have an inner circle of people who we see as kind of allies and collaborators. So when our smoking mortality paper came out, we had a press release that, that had quotes from the Heart Foundation and quotes from the Cancer Council in it. We had a commentary in the a lay commentary in the conversation that came out at the same time from Simon Chapman. We had the Public Health Association giving another press release separately. And then the next day the Australian um, Council on Smoking and Health, or ACOSH, actually did a full one-page advertisement in the, in Western Australia. Uh, saying sort of smokers, the news just got worse basically. Yeah. Because our main finding from that, which we was that up to two thirds of all current smokers in Australia would die from their habit rather than that estimate of a half. And that may not sound, I mean, they're both horrendous. Mm. That may not sound like a big difference, but when people called the quit line, they had a kind of, well, 50 50 chance it'll get you, right? But to change that to two thirds mm. makes a big difference because it's kind of odds on it'll get you. So, we, um, we also had, as part of that, we made, we took our sort of relative risks and the sort of, you know, quite complex uh, messages that are in the dense kind of paper 
and, and made sure we had key messages that were very clear. So they were up to two thirds of all current smokers would die from their habit. They were an average 10 years loss of life expectancy. They were quitting at any age is great, but quitting by 45, you avoid most of the excess mortality risks. So those kinds of messages. And then we said, well, there are 2.7 million smokers in Australia. 1.8 million of those people will die from their habit if they don't quit. So if you can get that message really distilled down. And so we've now had sort of feedback from many of the end users saying that it was incredibly useful to have it distilled down. It was incredibly useful to be engaged all the way through. And the other thing is we now have evidence, for example, that the quit line has taken up very early, they immediately took up that information um, and they now use it when they counsel people on the quit line, but they use it for all their educational material too. Um, and whenever those people speak publicly, for example, Sarah White, um, who's the director of Quit Victoria, says that she rarely speaks in public without quoting our paper now. So that's, I mean, the output oriented model is one that we've used for other, for multiple things now, but it's the idea of focusing on something you've got control of that you need to do as part of your job as a a researcher or in whatever area, but making sure that there are multiple opportunities for people who are end users to be engaged, to learn about it as you're developing it, and to shape it as well. Yeah, I definitely haven't done that. I'm going to have to really think about that. It's given me a lot to think about. (laughs) And the, the model, is that written up as, have you written that up as a framework that people can sort of go to to use themselves, or is it sort of an internal output-driven model that you've developed for your own use? Well, we've been developing it, but I've been, we've been very open talking to other okay. people. Okay. So uh, a couple of years ago, I presented, I, I did include it in a presentation to the Australasian Epidemiological Association. Um, I am in the process of writing it up with colleagues uh, at the Sachs Institute. I would definitely read that. <laughs> and, um, and we're also we've submitted an abstract to another conference. But it is it is something that we're developing. It's it's. I suppose in, in this case, it's been something that we've been doing because it seems like the right thing to do. And then we found that it really works. And then we've built on the things that seem to work well. So we are trying to then write it up in a way that makes it useful. Because what I think you often find is there's a litany of descriptions of the problem. Saying, well, researchers, you know, what they're doing is really esoteric. I can't use it. Yeah. Or policymakers are unable to use the information or um, I meet with them and nothing happens, or I've got research, I don't know what to do. And I'm quite often people say to me, well, you seem to have had some success. I've got these findings, what can I do? And I would say, well, it's like that joke. I, I would say, well, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, if, you've got, if you think that the, the point is you do your research and then you somehow give it to a policymaker and that'll work, that's not the most effective way. The most effective way is to have decision makers and your end users engaged in shaping that research in the first place and engaged in giving you an awareness of what the policy hunger is and what the need is out there. Yeah. And what we also find is it's a cyclical approach. So we would start with that first output, the smoking mortality, and then we might, and they'll help us to shape the next outputs. And so the, that next thing we'll, we'll start working on and we'll meet with them about that next thing. And, then, and, and what happens is a deepening relationship and a deepening sense of trust mm-hmm. and a deepening understanding of the policy process as well so that you then are in a position when they are on the spot and need some data about smoking, they know they can call you. So that's, that's another kind of spin-off from it is that you have, well, it's not really a spin-off, it's part of why the approach works because you have a cyclical approach that, that actually deepens the understanding and it does lend itself very well to when you do have a program of work that's of policy relevance and you know you've got multiple outputs coming out. It's 
really interesting. Yeah, I, I think a lot of what you're talking about is relationships and communication. And I think particularly in communication, it's not something we do particularly well a lot of times in research. So it's something I really want to keep my eye on for my, for my own research. I certainly haven't done any of that. So the next thing I wanted to touch on was your leading and being involved in so many amazing large cohort studies. First of all, how did you get involved in that area of research? And then maybe you could talk us a little bit um, through what it was like coming here and how getting the 45 and up study, maybe what the 45 and up study is and then how that the setup for that went about. I'm sure it was, um, it was a big achievement, so I can't imagine what went into setting it up. So um, I finished tra- training clinical medicine, but I got very interested in epidemiology about midway through. I just thought epidemiology by statistics, it explains, you know, it's a theory of mind for medicine ultimately. And I did get things thrown at me for asking too many questions because uh, at medical school, because I just found that quite often people will stand up in front of you and go, if someone's got this, give them that. And I knew that that information was not a static thing. Treatments change, new evidence arises. And I was just really, really frustrated. And then when I, I took a year out and did epidemiology and biostatistics, um, because I saw a lecture from Judith Lumley and I just thought, that's it, that is what it is. And so I still went back and did my internship and fin- you know, finished my medical degree, but I was absolutely committed. And people thought I was crazy. I, had, I actually had a psychiatrist trying to talk me out of it. Oh, and no, so is awesome. Uh, well, at that point, it was quite a while ago, people just thought I was a bit... I, well, I don't know if they thought I was crazy, but certainly the psychiatrist said, you know, I, I was told, oh, you're, you're too interesting and vibrant and it's full of people with beards and bad dress sense, you know. And I just thought, well, uh, you know, first of all, they don't know just how hot epidemiologists are. But also, I just thought that was a very... It was a very superficial thing. Yeah. And I think it really also is because there is a way in which epidemiology, particularly at that point, was regarded by clinicians as sort of proving the self-evident and and really not relevant to what they were doing. The whole evidence-based care movement, although there's a way in which everything should have been evidence-based anyway, but something about the branding of that did help in that conversation. And I think it is something that's developing because certainly some of the people who tried to talk me out of it have since said, oh, I get the point, now I see what you mean. But at that point, it was seen as a pretty crazy thing to do. So um, I had a fellowship to go to the US, and I was going over there to join my then boyfriend, and we broke up about six weeks before I was due to go, and it was like a complete, everything fell apart. And so I changed my ticket to go to the UK, because actually that's where I'm originally from, and that was where I'm more thought about locating public health and epidemiology. And when I arrived there, people went, well, you're, you know, look, you've got no scholarship, you've got nothing, what are you doing? <laughs> and I thought, I did have a point. Um, but I was sort of exploring things. And then people kept saying that Professor Valerie Beryl gave very good career advice to young women and maybe I should call her up. So I, I sort of tried a few times. And then finally I got on to, I, had my, I was in a pub and it was before mobile phones and I had like my finger in one ear and I had the phone on the other. And she said, oh, you know, your phone call has interrupted me writing out this job advertisement and you sound like exactly the right person. So oh come and God. see me. And actually she was walking distance from my granny's place where I was staying. So I walked over and that was a job um, working on a very large study of breast cancer and hormone replacement therapy, as it was then called. And at that point, it was it was sort of starting out. It wasn't, the design wasn't finalised and those sorts of things. But I was then offered that job and um, it was really terrific because it also meant that I could start work as an epidemiologist straight away. So I didn't have to become a student again and I, mm. after seven years of being at medical school and, and having done the extra year of, of epidemiology and biostatistics, I was not in any frame of mind to go straight into a PhD. That's fair. <laughs> so I was able to then do my PhD part-time, which was fantastic. And it was, it was living in, and working in Oxford, which I just adored. It was fantastic. So that, was, that then became the Million Women's Study. I did a lot of the work on the ground. So that's another thing I would say to people out there is quite often when you start out, 
you sort of have an idea of what what being an epidemiologist or public health physician means. I was designing questionnaires on the on desktop. I was entering data. I was doing running analyses. I was just doing whatever it took to get this thing off the ground. We ended up recruiting 66 breast screening services. So I was working with other staff to, to explain the study to, to places and to why it would be a good thing. I even did things like um, I had to make sure that the weight of the questionnaire didn't push the postage for the for the invitations to breast screening into the next category. And then I also had to get the, I got the printer down to 4.18 pence per questionnaire because if you have a million women that yeah. you, you, know, you want to recruit, you have to send out a lot of questionnaires. So um, anyway, there, there were all sorts of things that I had to do at that point which were really just about what it took. They were about what it took to get those things off the, off the ground. So, and obviously I was working with Valerie Beryl, who is just brilliant. And, and it was the most extraordinary experience to be able to be there, to be working on a shared problem and to be learning from her and learning together. Um, and and I, I, you know, she's, she's just absolutely incredible. And the team there were just fantastic. So I consider myself extremely privileged to have been working on that. Um, I was there for nine years and I was then I then was recruited to set up the 45 and up study. I wrote the protocol for it while I was in the UK. I was commissioned to do that and then I came back to work on setting it up. And once again, it's a massive team effort. I, I know that often the leaders get the most profile, but really if you, if you think about something that's of that scale and all of what we do, it's about teamwork. There's no question that you can do these things on your own. And I've reached the point where I don't do my own analyses anymore. So I'm definitely disabled without, um, or that's probably the wrong word. I'm definitely um, someone who needs to be connected to a whole team to do what I do. There's, it's very limited what I can do on my own. And how did they get the initial buy-in for the study? Um, it's obviously a large study that would have taken a lot of resources to set up and it you know with a cohort study it takes a while to be able to get output so who was involved at the beginning to say we want to set this up you know having that foresight right so the so the first thing was that professor sally redmond really saw the potential in it and bruce bruce armstrong so it was a sort of there was a consortium of people who kind of got it and were the ones who who set things in motion and so the first thing is, I mean, there are lots of things written about how you bring about change. I, 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 the one I find most useful is Cotter's eight-stage change process. So the first step of that is usually building the guiding coalition, and the next sense, next one is to create a sense of urgency. There's all sort of steps to it. But the main thing was that there were people who, who believed in it and saw its value and saw what the Men and Women study had done and, and other large-scale cohort studies had done and really noticed that Australia didn't have that. What we tended to have was really high-quality studies, but of, of tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of people. And they're also tended to be run by individual research groups. Now, obviously, those have been very successful, and there's, there's a number of really great studies going on out there. But the idea was to set up something which was a shared resource from the very beginning, and so had buy-in from the very beginning. But you're absolutely right. We couldn't go to the NHMRC and say, we've got this really great idea of a study where we involved 10% of the New South Wales population 45 and over just as we couldn't really do that for the men and women's study either. So we had to find ways of starting it up. I think they call it bootstrapping now. It's where you sort of start it up and then you, you get more and more buy-in. What we really had at the beginning, with it's now the Sachs Institute's 45 and up study, what we really had at the beginning there was the Cancer Council of New South Wales and the Heart Foundation's New South Wales Division and New South Wales Health, all founding partners and all believed in it. 
So it wasn't the most expensive thing in the world to set up. We're not talking about the sort of hundreds of millions that people often get to set things up. It really was, it was modest from that point of view because it was using existing linkage infrastructure and other things. But it really, we had to have those supporters and those supporters have been with us all the way through. They've been fantastic. We've had other terrific supporters who've joined us since then, Beyond Blue, Uniting Care Ageing, Disability um, and Home Care, I think is the name. Oh, the name has changed quite a few times. <laughs> also, the blood the blood service is supporting us now. So we've oh, got great. this really great variety of people who've seen the value and seen how a relatively modest upfront investment in infrastructure can then leverage a huge number of outputs. I see it as a bit like telescopes. If you think astronomy used to be sort of individual people in their backyard with one, te- you know, a small telescope looking up. When we pulled our resources to create huge telescopes that we all shared we could see that much further. And this is about pooling the infrastructure. Oh, I think it's such a great achievement. You should be really proud of it. Having used the data, but even without it, like, you know, I go through and read all the um, different publications that you guys get out, and it's just, it's a really an amazing achievement. What are you most proud of as the study, you know, as part of the study? What are some of the highlights that have come out of it so far? Well, I'm really proud of the fact that we started it as a collaborative resource. So we had 120 collaborating researchers who actually helped us design the questionnaire. Now that was a difficult process. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and we had to have processes to do that. But the fact is that that meant that we were starting from a place where people really understood what what we what what the baseline was, and we had all of their expertise. I'm really proud of the fact that there are more than 600 researchers who've used the data, and I'm also really proud of all 200, must be more than 220 in our publications. I'm also particularly proud of the fact that there's a really large number of early career researchers, um, I think we're up to around 60, who've used the research for their work. If you're thinking about sort of highlights about what's most exciting, I think that's highly dependent on what you find most exciting. So, I mean, I'm very excited about the smoking and mortality work because I feel that that's had a really big impact and it's still Australia's leading cause of burden of disease. There are other people who are very excited about the work showing the relationship of sitting time to increase mortality. Other people have done work looking at passive smoking in flats and use that to influence legislation about exposure to passive smoking. There's fantastic work on infections and health, so awesome awesome work on showing... uh, that breastfeeding prevents diabetes. There's, oh, there's absolutely yeah, there's a huge array of things out there that, that I think we can all be really proud of. There's also a really detailed study looking at um, housing and independent living, looking at people in their homes and what hazards mean, you know, that, they, that it's difficult for them to age in place, yeah. as we call it, or stay independent, and what interventions you can do. There's been randomised trials of e-interventions for depression. It's a huge range of things. So. I'd really encourage people if they are interested to look it up on the website and just see the variety that's out there because it's very difficult to capture it now in, in, in one talk. And in fact, it, it, to me, I'm, one of the things I'm proudest of is that it is difficult to capture it in a talk. Yeah, no, that's great. And we can certainly put the link up um, on the website so that people can access it easily if they choose to. So I'm just conscious of time. And there was something that I wanted to touch on with you um, before we finished, which is what we were talking about before the interview started. A lot of the good conversation always happens (laughs) before and after the interview. And I'm happy to use myself as a case study. So basically, I walked in and I think I said something to you along the lines of feeling like I'm not doing a very good job with the podcast and you gave me some advice about being you know a young researcher um, or a young professional coming up through the ranks and I was wondering if you could maybe repeat that for our listeners because I thought it was really good advice. Well I, I think it's it's a much broader kind of almost existential thing which is that 
If you're any good at all, you're really quite critical, and particularly in science, in which case you're really quite self-critical. And so I notice that when people are presenting data, they'll quite often not say the really clear and obvious thing the data said. They'll go straight to the bit that they don't know much about or, well, yeah, well, we couldn't adjust for this or whatever. They, they really don't step through what is clear and obvious. They're much more focused on the problems. Mm-hmm. So I said to you when you arrived, it is fantastic that you're doing this. It's fantastic that you're going out interviewing people. It's in addition to your day job. You don't have to be doing it. It's terrific. And what I got back from you was sort of a smile and some warmth, but then a sort of general apology about how you're actually quite hopeless at it. Now, I think that is also, that's quite gendered. People, you know, that women often do it because you're imagining what you could have been like. And you're also imagining what it looks like from the outside. So you're imagining someone else who comes in here and puts out the microphone and goes, yes. But actually that person's doing exactly the same thing behind the scenes. So... I think it is really, really important that we um, work on that within ourselves, particularly as women. And because I'm I'm often sitting there going, "Mm, I don't know anything about that, but I do know about this. And if you can make the things you do know about and the things that you are doing right much, much more prominent and peripheralize what, what is often termed the inner critic that goes, oh, you're getting a bit full of yourself. The other thing I think that women are often navigating is that it is actually really difficult for women to be perceived as both likeable and competent. It's a genuine dilemma. So it's not. So what happens is often if women are shown to be very competent, they are perceived by people around them as being less likeable. They're seen as a bit of a battle axe or they're seen as you know, exacting or bossy or whatever term. And it's not that that's a misapprehension. It's actually true. Yeah. So there are many tactics to deal with this. Often what women themselves are doing is just continually apologising for themselves, thereby making themselves seem less threatening, but also undermining how competent people think, see, they, see themselves as. So, so it's actually to do with being confident in yourself and, and knowing that you're likeable. So one of the main suggestions I've seen, I, I would really recommend a book called, called Playing Big, by Tara Moore, her last name is spelled M-O-H-R, I'm sure you can include it. Yes, and we will put it in the link. I mean, that's just one example. There are plenty of examples out out there. But one of the things that she says is, you'll often look at emails from women and they're like a a series of apologies. They say, just wanted to get in touch. If you've got a moment, I know you're really busy. Um, uh, I really need this by Friday. Um, Thanks so much. Or, Or if a woman's trying to actually address an issue in a paper, so quite often you'll be with a group of people and you'll be sent around a paper and you'll think, right, well, this is this needs doing differently. The exclusions are wrong or the adjustments are wrong or whatever. You'll do a kind of like, oh, I'm just not sure if I've got it right. It looks like on page three there's an issue with the adjustment. Oh, but I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Feel free to disregard everything I say. I write that. I'm not yeah. going to do that anymore. Right. So what you can do, and she has this sort of beautiful example, so you just take all of the excuses out of it. And what you do is you create a kind of warmth sandwich. So you say, oh, this is a terrific paper and it's really great to see it taking shape and thank you so much for all the hard work you've done. I'm aware that you're, you know, you've you've got a sore leg or whatever thing. And then you say, "Um, just, I have the following comments, don't say just, the following (laughs) comments. Adjustment on page blah, blah, could be blah, blah. Adjustment, and then you say, happy to discuss, really looking forward to getting together next week to have coffee. So you create a warmth sandwich, but you don't undermine it because... The issue is that, that there is a genuine problem that if you appear too competent, you'll be perceived as less warm and likeable. So you have to find direct ways of being warm and likeable within the context of being competent. 
Now we will, we're not going to totally overthrow patriarchy in the next or the gender stereotypes in the next, you know, short while. So we will be cursed with being seen as hard-nosed if we are perceived as competent. But, but there's plenty that we can do about being warm and connected. And we can also do plenty to support other women um, and, and to support men too and to connect with everybody to say we are here for everybody. The other thing I think most women find is that, and, and, and there's evidence for this too, that women are really bad at bargaining or, or being assertive when they think it's about themselves. But if they think it's about other people and their team or the beneficiaries, then they can be as uh, hard-nosed as men or as competitive or as, as uh, effective as men. So it's a kind of mama bear thing they talk about. I'm not, I'm not sure I buy that stereotype, but it is definitely true that one of the great things to do also is to take your own, try to take yourself out of the equation to say, I'm here to comment on this paper. This isn't little old Emily trying to say that there's something wrong with this paper. It's my job for the beneficiaries. It's my job for people who'll be using this. It's my job to do this. And I'm doing, I'm going to do the best I can for this enterprise. So actually working together on the shared problem rather than seeing it as a social exchange is another I think another important, useful cognitive technique. It's really true, actually, because I've spoken with um, Melina from Franklin Women, and I'll check with her before I release this, talking about that people say that she's brave for setting up Franklin Women and people say I'm brave for doing the podcast, but neither of us feel like very brave people. But I think the reason that we do it is because we both believe in the cause. Mm. And I think that's the same kind of thing. It's easier to be brave when it's not about you, when it's about something you really believe in. Mm. So I'm definitely going to read that book because it is something I really want to um, work on, um, not just for myself, but for others. You know, I was saying to you earlier, how can I ask other people to believe in themselves if I can't do it for myself? So it's something I really want to work on. I hope people have gotten a bit out of that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So finally, I will finish by asking you about your favourite book, even though you've already mentioned one, but I know you're an avid reader. But before that, are there any other sort of big messages or things that you'd um, tips or things you'd give for sort of young people coming through the the ranks of public health that you think might be useful for them oh look there's a too many (laughs) there's a huge range of things i i I think if if, i'm just trying to think about the things that would be that, that are useful generally um one of the first things is that often people come to research having been very high achievers in different places and it's incredibly hard like it is a really hard thing and you, you have to kind of go back to the beginning, but also it does include quite a lot of rejections. So, you know, I, I, I remember, and, and I think what's really important is to understand that that's part of the learning and to develop resilience. So I used to, I used to get like my grant got, grants got rejected and my, you know, terrible peer review comments. And I remember thinking, man, when I'm a success, this won't happen to me. And then I looked around and thought, actually, if I look around at people who I think of as successful, those things happen to them too. So one of the most important things is to understand what success looks like at each point. And I think success is about is about having a genuine curiosity about what you're doing and a genuine drive to understand and a genuine drive to make a difference. And obviously you have to have excellence in there. You have to be learning all the time and you have to be producing good things. But you also have to understand that, that success includes all of those setbacks. Success includes getting your paper absolutely trashed by someone who doesn't understand it. Success includes standing up in front of a group of people and someone goes saying something that completely undermines it, is completely incorrect, but everyone believes them, not you. That happens. And that's, that's actually part of the picture. So I think it's really important to, to develop a sense of, of resilience. And you know, it's, it's easy to say develop it, but really to understand that it's a normal part of the process that you will have um, setbacks and you will have things that don't go as well as you think and that it's your job to kind of 
keep on going and to develop that persistence. And Pasteur himself said, um, you know, people ask me the secret for my success and it is my persistence. So research is, uh, it's about brilliance, but it's also about persistence. Oh, thank you. That's really excellent. Um, and just to finish up, I finish by asking people about um, a favourite book that's maybe inspired them or changed the way they've thought about the world. But you can have two or three if you like, because I know that you're really into <laughs> books like I am. <laughs> well, what I think is quite interesting is people often think that things like management, building a team, come kind of naturally and that you don't need to apply the same kind of learning techniques that you would to say learning logistic regression or some other elements of statistics. I do like logistic regression. <laughs> well, I love logistic regression too, but I wouldn't dream of going out embarking on logistic regression without doing some reading first. True. Yeah, so I read a lot about management. I absolutely love reading about how things work and how people work and, and how you can support people to bring out the best in them and how you can support yourself to bring out the best in yourself. And so I've got a huge array of books that I read in that and I recommend to my team because the other thing is it's really useful whatever role you're playing to understand how what you're doing fits in and to understand how systems work. So if I was thinking of books, just a handful of books that I've read that I've loved. So Tara Moore and Playing Big is one, but I would also, I love The Checklist Manifesto by Atulga One Day and that's really about how things work and how to make them better. I love the book Difficult Conversations by Douglas Stone and the Harvard project that they have there, which is really about conflict resolution. So that's fantastic. There's another book which is a really good starting place for people to understand management better, and that's called The First Time Manager by Lauren Belker. So they're just some examples. I read a lot of literature also. I love Middle March by George Eliot. If I'm thinking about books that have changed my life, Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. So there's multiple I'm I'm never not reading a book so that's a very long-winded answer to how many books no it's a very good answer (laughs) I would be the same if someone asked me about books so well thank you so much this has been a really valuable interview for me personally so I hope that other people will find it useful as well I will thank you so much Emily it's been a complete pleasure excellent and thank you for listening on stories in public health